If you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10, we're going to be hanging out in verses 32 through 45 this morning. And the question in front of us is, what is true greatness? And answering the question of who is the greatest. There we go. Now, some of us are old enough to have remembered this. I want to, let's just test everybody's memory. If I say the following sentence, I am the greatest, what's the first name that pops into your head? Say it out loud. I predicted you people. <laughs> Muhammad Ali, actually the day before he became Muhammad Ali, he was still Cassius Clay when he made this statement prior to getting into this fight with Sonny Liston where Muhammad Ali was considered to be an underdog in that and Sonny Liston gave up after the end of the sixth round. But not only did Muhammad Ali say, I am the greatest, he took it a little bit further. He, he said, I, let me just start over. I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. <laughs> Greatness is a category that we like to explore. Last week, much to my chagrin, my favorite soccer team on the face of the planet, the mighty Seattle Sounders FC, faced our arch nemesis, our deepest rival, our hated little brother to the south, the Portland Timbers. Prior to the beginning of that game, fans in one of the end zones, well, that's not an end zone, one of the, one of the goals, displayed a massive display that said, the greatest club you've ever seen. And they promptly went out and lost three to nothing. <laughs> and the Empire strikes back. Luke Skywalker is on his quest to meet Yoda. And he finds this creature. It's still unidentified exactly what kind of species this is. Luke Skywalker does not know that it's Yoda. And he says that he's looking for a great warrior. And let's test all of my Star Wars nerds out there. What does Yoda say in return? Wars do not make one great. Thank you. I, thanks for the support, brother. I appreciate it. I need it. I'm not alone. I love it. Greatness. We're on a constant quest for greatness. Searching for it, aching for it, longing for it, loving to have the discussions and creating categories of who is the greatest. Whether it's the greatest theologian, whether it's the greatest athlete, whether it's the greatest author, all, all, all the time we are looking to figure out who is the greatest and Jesus is going to give us some answers this morning. But before he gets to the answer, Jesus has something to say once again to his disciples. And this is the third time that he's going to bring it up. This is starting in verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Here's what we need to wrestle with a little bit. The disciples are being described as being both amazed and afraid. The question is lingering, why? Because what he's about to say to them is not new information. He adds a couple of details, but this is not new. He has said to them before that he is going to Jerusalem. They know that his mission is to go to Jerusalem. I think the text tells us why they were amazed, and it's very subtle. I'm not trying to be creative and crafty. I just think it's in there. Sometimes we just miss it. 
It's in Boulder. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. That kind of walking shows a level of intention, of a sense of resolve. Normally when we see Jesus, it, we kind of get the picture that Jesus is walking side by side, or maybe they're just kind of crowded around him as they're traveling. But this definitely gives a picture that Jesus is out a few steps in front of them and is walking with a serious intention. I think perhaps the reason why the disciples are amazed is because they recognize that Jesus is resolute in what it is that he is about to do. That he's no longer hesitating. That the mission is almost complete. That they've done this wandering around and Jesus is serious about going to accomplish his mission, which is ultimately to go to the cross. In prior accounts, Jesus has said that he's going to suffer. But in this passage, he gets a bit more specific and names what that suffering is going to be, starting verse 33, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now Jesus is getting specific. That first, the chief priest will be involved. And the chief priest will wash their hands of it, and hand it over to the Gentiles. And then he describes the suffering of what's going to happen, and specifically the beating that he is going to take and the death that he is going to take. Is it any wonder that the disciples are amazed that he's walking out in front of them? If we knew that we were walking towards our own death, most of us would be walking really, really slow. We would take the long, scenic route. But Jesus is showing that he is moving forward. He is resolute to do what God sent him to do, which is to go to the cross and suffer the punishment to rescue sinners. Now with that as a backdrop, with Jesus having confirmed he is serious, he is unyielding in his will to go to Jerusalem, with that as a backdrop, what happens next is absolutely jaw-dropping and mind-blowing. Keep in mind, Jesus just said, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be killed. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do something. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You have to admire just the sheer oblivion of these guys' minds. Jesus has just announced the severity of the beating and the death he's going to take. And these guys are saying, I wonder if we can get something out of him before he goes. Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? The text doesn't tell us. So there's some sanctified speculation going on here. But I have to think that Jesus just simply smiled at them and asked almost whimsically, what do you want me to do for you? But even that question, and I appreciate that Mark included that question for us because it 
paints a picture of Jesus. That Jesus has this tender, gentle heart. Was Jesus surprised by the thought patterns of James and John in this moment? This is the interactive portion of today's message. Was he surprised? No, of course not. Jesus knew exactly what was on their minds, knew exactly what the request was going to be, and yet he was still willing to engage their minds and their hearts. He would have been well within his rights to have rebuked them and to say, how dare you ask such a stupid question, particularly after what I just said to you. Do you not get it? Well, no, they don't get it. They demonstrate that they don't get it. But I also want you to see the tender heart of Jesus in this because it matters for us today. Our brains go a million different places, and we have all kinds of really incredible outlandish requests for our Lord. But notice that Jesus, even despite the outlandish request, was still willing to engage with these guys. You can take your wandering thoughts to Almighty God, and he'll listen. Now, it doesn't always mean he's going to back up what you have to say. You potentially might get corrected. You might get some pushback. But he's willing to listen. and He will engage with you if he will engage with your heart. Even when you're making unreasonable requests, God Almighty listens. He does not shut down the conversation on you. He will listen. So here comes the request in verse 37. They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Well, there is a school of thought out there, some kind of some theological language. Don't get spooked by it just yet. There is a theology of the cross and a theology of glory. I'll spare you the Latin phrases. You cannot have a theology of glory until you have a theology of the cross. And this is what James and John are missing. They're already presuming the glory, but they're not willing to engage with the reality of the cross. And so Jesus has to slow them down a little bit. Now, I want to be gentle with James and John here, because in a way they have a little bit, a little bit of a good idea as to what's going to come. They just put themselves in the wrong position. Because we are told later on that for followers of Jesus, that we will rule with him in eternity. So they're, they're off, but they're not terribly off. They just misunderstood their position. And they misunderstood their position here on earth. And Jesus lets them know, before you get to the glory, you have to deal with the cross. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Again, you got to admire the confidence of these guys. And they're also revealing, even in that response, they're still not fully getting the intention behind Jesus' ministry. They're thinking, hey, yeah, we'll go to battle. 
let's bring it on, let's go. They're still missing the point. They're thinking that this messianic ruler is going to be one that, that leads an army and throws off the shackles of Roman tyranny. They're still missing it. So they're saying, well, yeah, if you want us to fight with you and to die with you, yeah, we're in, let's go. So Jesus says, the cup I drink, you will drink. Now, we have the luxury of being on this side of history. We know that when Jesus is talking about that cup, it instantly should send our brains to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying, and he asks, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but your will be done. And that cup is a picture of God's wrath to come. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He's predicting there is coming a future fury that they're going to experience as a result of being one of his followers. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Again, Jesus is talking very sternly to them, but the fact he's even talking to them at all should make us marvel. It's a very arrogant request, and it completely misses the point, and it completely avoids what Jesus came to do, and yet Jesus is still willing to engage them in conversation. We should read this passage and be really, really encouraged by it, that we as broken, fallen human beings who are going to mess stuff up all the time still have access to a Savior who's willing to engage us in thought, still willing to speak to us, does not create conditions under which that conversation can happen, but is willing to hear every last word of us, no matter how misguided it might be. James and John, they see Jesus as a way to get status, position, and prestige. And it's understandable. Everywhere that Jesus goes, people flock to him. Jesus is doing cool, amazing stuff everywhere he goes. If we're really close to Jesus, people will think of us the way they think of Jesus. I would like to have a crowd too. So Jesus lovingly corrects them and flips things once again upside down. But first, he has to get through to James and John. That in order to get what they're asking for, they're going to have to endure what he will endure. Now, are they going to endure it at the same level? No. And will it accomplish the same things? No. But he's indicating to them there is suffering to come. You will suffer. And Jesus is going to give them clarity about this. But there's something that happens first that is worthy of us just kind of stopping. Mark 10, 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. I think the question we have to ask is, why are the other ten indignant? It's certainly not because, I cannot believe those guys would treat Jesus this way. Instead, they're like, crud, they got their request in before we got our request in. It's not because they somehow got it better than the rest. They didn't. The other ten exposed themselves. That, in fact, that it is the desire of their heart. And how do we know that? Because just last chapter, we see this in Mark 9. They came to Capernaum, and he was in the house. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? He did not need to ask that question. 
But they kept silent for, which was probably the best idea, they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So them being indignant in chapter 10 is only because they didn't get a chance to ask Jesus before James and John rushed up to him to do it. And so Jesus is going to give clarity. What does true greatness look like? Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Yesterday, my two oldest daughters returned from girls' music camp, and they had done it in the past. And my oldest one, there was one year where she went on her own, and there was a song that they learned. I don't normally sing, and I'm going to keep to that. (laughs) But I'll tell you the words. And it's going to pain my daughters to not do the hand motions that go with this song. Actually, I might end up saying that's the best way to do this. Stop and think, don't be so fast. If you want to be first, you must be last. It's upside down and hard to do. You should put others first before you. If you want to be great, if you want to be tall. You must be a servant to all. Now, (laughs) once was more than enough. But the reality of what they learned during that song, it's not original. I've said to you before, I don't ever preach anything original. I steal all my stuff. I try to do it straight from Scripture. So this doesn't require a whole lot of explanation or exposition. What did Jesus really mean when he said that we should be a servant? There's no hidden message in there. Look at it in Greek, English, Latin, Syriac, Swahili, whatever. It's going to mean the same exact thing. It means to take the position of saying, I'm willing to be a servant. And that true greatness in God's economy is to be a servant. Greatness, according to the way of Jesus, is to be a servant. Here's what happens, though. If you act like that, you might not be remembered. Now, we all know who Muhammad Ali is. Was he great? Well, yes, he was a fantastic boxer. But what about the great ones that you've never heard of before? There's an old theologian by the name of Count Zinzendorf, who one of his models was, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. (laughs) Years ago, when Drea and I were on the East Coast serving at a church there, we had a junior high Sunday school teacher by the name of Dave DeForest. You've never heard of Dave DeForest in your life. 
unless you happen to be overseas and listen to the voice of America and you heard Dave DeForest doing the news, you would never know who he was. Dave DeForest uh, remained single for the entirety of his life. But for nearly 30 years, is that, is that right, 30 years-ish? It felt like it. Maybe it was 20, but it felt like 30. Dave faithfully taught junior high kids in Sunday school week after week after week. Now, if you look at Dave DeForest, you would not say that this was the coolest man you've ever met. He insisted on wearing a coat and tie every Sunday, and that's exactly what he wore when he taught junior high kids, and junior high kids adored him. Not because he was cool. Dave would have been the first to tell you, I am not cool. But Dave first loved Jesus. Secondly, he loved this church. And third, he used his gift to bless tons and tons and tons of lives. I happened to marry one of them. Dave DeForest somewhat secretly donated a considerable amount of money to a seminary in North Carolina that funds scholarships for for students who are looking for theological training. And it wasn't until after he died that his name was published that he was the one that had donated that money. Again, you don't know Dave DeForest, but according to Jesus here, Dave DeForest is great. He served, and he served faithfully, and he served well. God called him home a couple of years ago after a very secretive and quiet struggle with a very aggressive cancer. Even in the midst of that, was choosing to serve and be a blessing. His greatness was evident. There is greatness all throughout this church body. There's greatness that hangs out in their bedrooms, praying faithfully for members of this flock. There's greatness in this church family that meet the physical needs of members of our church family, whether it is doing yard work at people's homes, helping with vehicle difficulties, just providing some level of support when a baby arrives or when crisis shows up. This church is filled with greatness because there's a lot of tremendous cooks that if a meal train is announced, there's an insane amount of food that gets produced by this church family and then disseminated throughout the county. It's stunning. And almost every single one of you do that quietly and humbly and gently and without any fanfare. And you will never hear the words, wow, you're great. But you need to know that in Jesus' economy, yes, you are. You've chosen to serve. You've chosen to be a blessing. You may never hear a human voice telling you that you're great. But you have a Savior in heaven who is watching all of it and is delighted by the way that you've chosen to serve. Jesus sharpens our focus in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We've said from the very beginning of this series in Mark 
that this is the central theme verse for all of Mark's accounts. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins. He gave himself up to rescue the many. Jesus is the one who is the greatest of all time. And he showed it by coming to serve. And how do we know that? One of my favorite verses, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Jesus' economy, the way up is down. When we choose humility, when we choose to serve, we are modeling the life and the ministry of our Savior. If you're a follower of Jesus already, my prayer is that you would continue to allow your life to be shaped, molded, and transformed by this truth and by the nature and the character of the Savior that you've trusted in. And choose to serve. That's where true greatness is at. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope you get a picture of the real Jesus. One who came to serve and to bless you and to rescue you and to introduce you to the forgiveness of your sins, to the grace of God, and for a transformed life for now through eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this needed reminder that we need not be concerned about our own greatness. Instead, we give attention to choosing to serve. We thank you that your son modeled that. Not only did he say it, but then he demonstrated it. And he demonstrated it most clearly by going to the cross on our behalf, willing to give himself up to serve the many, to rescue many. Father, I thank you for those in this room who have already trusted you as their Savior. I pray that you would embed this truth within them. That true greatness is servanthood. And Father, for those who are not yet your followers, I pray they would see that what Jesus came to do was to serve them. I pray they would trust in the risen Christ. Father, I thank you for the great servants that are scattered all throughout this church body. We recognize that for most of them, they're never going to get the applause of man. But I'm also pretty convinced that not a one of them are terribly motivated by that. But I do pray that they would, by your spirit, feel your appreciation. That they would feel your acknowledgement. You see them. You see their deeds. You see how they're serving. Lord, I pray that in your own special, unique way, that you would be the one to give them the credit that they won't seek for themselves. Father, thank you for the work that you're doing in, within this, in, with, and through this church family. And we pray you continue to do so to glorify yourself. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.